Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another edition of Rugby Coach Weekly's podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cottrell. I'm editor of Rugby Coach Weekly, and I'm delighted that we have caught up with Ryan Martin. Ryan, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, Dan, and uh, yeah, great to be on the show. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm really pleased we've got Ryan on board. Uh, Ryan uh, was formerly head coach of the New England Free Jacks, which is the one of the teams in the US Pro League, and now is the attack coach with the Melbourne Rebels. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested to talk to Ryan about is the fact that his journey to working with the Rebels in the Super Rugby competition is not your typical journey, and I think there's going to be a lot of things we're going to pick up from that. So, uh, Ryan, I'm going to jump straight in with the questions, and um, perhaps you will give us a little bit of background on how you reached the lofty heights of attack coach with the <laughs> Melbourne Rebels. But um, in general, how's your coaching changed along the journey from what I'm going to put in inverted commas, grassroots, to the pro game? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think it's changed a lot but it hasn't so it's a great paradox for me um and you know bearing in mind my rugby coaching career started at the under 10 age group in uh Dunedin back in Otago in 2004 um I was a primary school teacher and um there's a direct correlation between the time I put into the students outside of the class and how well they behaved inside the class so Coaching was a, a no-brainer in terms of, um, you know, first-year teaching and, and behaviour management strategy. Um, so w- what I've found, though, is a lot of those strategies that I used with under-teens um, are still the same strategies I use to this day, you know, 16, 17 years later uh, in a highly, highly professional environment of, of super rugby. Um, but I suppose that the biggest change that I've noticed um is around dealing with the pastoral aspects of the athlete, which once again falls into kind of the teaching behaviour management realm, um, where I think that's why a lot of teacher coaches have been ex- successful. So coaches that have start out, started out in the foundation of teaching and then crossed over to coaching. Um, and that uh, ability is actually, I suppose, made me a little bit of an anomaly, an outlier, in the professional coaching world um, where a lot of ex-players, professional players, you know, will step into the coaching realm, maybe without the, that um, grounding of behavioural um, aspects and, and the learning process as well. So, um, you know, after after 17 years, it's, it's quite rewarding to um, be doing this as a full-time gig um, as a professional coach now and having started off at pretty humble beginnings. So when you go back and look at the under-10s and you say you're still using some of those strategies, yeah. can you give me some examples of things that uh, you might be still using now and you think, yeah, I used to use that with uh, the nine-year-olds 
on a wet and windy yeah. Wednesday afternoon. I, I think what I was always passionate about was skill acquisition and how to actually get better at things. And that's a lot of a lot of what I did when I was working with under 10. So I'd break a skill down and put some type of stimulus, whether it was time, a time pressure, a, a spatial pressure, or a physical stimulus inside the drill that um, kind of overemphasized the, the action that you wanted. Um, and then I'd move on to game sense. So at the time in 2004 in New Zealand, teaching games for understanding kind of had just come about. And I was really passionate about it. I was like, hang on a minute, this is, this is great stuff. Little modified games where you can um, enforce certain types of behaviours that you want to emphasise and, and create a real awesome, um, uh, I suppose, an awesome experience of the sport regardless of what the, the type of ball you're using, whether it was a basketball or a rugby ball or a hockey ball, you know, just kind of slashing back the whole fundamentals like invasion, evasion games, target games. Um, and I actually still use that to this day, so that, that whole principle. So, uh, for example, if the Rebels, if it's if it's Wednesday, which is our kicking day, um, I'll, I'll look at one base element of the kick. So we might focus in on the drop hunt um, and we might focus in on balance and ball drop only. And uh, so the, the start of the session will be based around well, how do we actually make our ball drop better. So it could be a drill where we make a fist hand with our non-dominant kicking hand, so it really forces the dominant kicking hand to bring the ball down to the foot. Um, and then I'd move it into a game where they're using a drop punt to manipulate space, uh, you know, team v team. And it's exactly the same as what I do at uh, primary school level in terms of um, what I just call gamification of a skill. Right, so if we're looking at the drop punt then, and uh, coaches would be thinking, well, first of all, we just maybe just need to clarify exactly what you mean by a drop punt. And secondly, uh, why is the ball drop so important and what, what are you looking for? I'm, I'm just fascinated on the actual individual skills and then we go back through to the uh, how you're trying to manipulate the players so their skill acquisition improves. Yeah, so the drop punt for me is obviously the, the main kick being used at the moment for direction and accuracy. Obviously the spiral... Um, punt was was pretty popular when I was playing the game in the 90s. The drop punt basically come from AFL over here in Australia where players are able to be a lot more accurate with the direction but also maintain the distance where the ball would travel end over end. Um, And really in kicking, everybody it's like goal kicking. Everybody has their idiosyncrasies in terms of the way they approach the ball. I never touch on that aspect because... A lot of kickers, you know, kicking the ball out of hand have idiosyncrasies before, um, you know, foot meets the ball. But there are two major biomechanical rules um, that you can't escape from, and that is the balance of the non-kicking foot, and um, which, you know, helps the force summation uh, from the posterior train coming through. And also the ball drop. So the lower we can uh, drop the ball out of our hands, it, it has less time for the ball to kind of change shape as it's going to the foot, which means we're going to be a lot more accurate. So all I'm looking for is if I was to run an axis through the middle, um, vertically through the middle of the ball, um, crossing through the sweet spot, that same axis should go right through the middle of our kicking foot from the knee right down through the middle of, of the actual bony parts of our foot. So as long as those two, those two match up, you're always going to have a, a really accurate kick. So a player then is got a specific skill like the, the kick. Yeah. Now, how would you help them find that 
well, I, I'm not going to say perfect technique. I'm going to say the technique which works for them. Yeah. How do you help them find that? Are you just throwing them a ball and say, have an experiment? Or are you saying specifically, here are some good examples of good drop hunters? Or are you just walking them through? What, what is the approach to give yeah. your players the, the best outcomes? So firstly, I'd start with indoor, just on some footage. So I'd look at some of the the different types of drop hunts that are out there. So if you look at Matt Tamore, he keeps the ball within within his hips as he makes connections. Same with Reese Hodge, um, a, a lot, and um, Tom Banks. A lot of the Australian kickers kick the ball w- within their hips, so they keep the whole line. Whereas if you look at uh, Pollard from South Africa, he'll come around the corner, what I call come around the corner and kick the ball, um, but. The biomechanics are exactly the same. When foot meets ball, that axis runs through the middle. So we'd have a look at some of the trends in the game around some of the best kickers. Then what I'd do is isolate one specific skill. Um, So if I was working on the balance of the non-kicking foot, I might put a little hurdle in front of the post cover pads and the player would bound over that single-legged land and kick. So we're really overemphasizing how good, how well we are balanced. And then I'd just film that from behind. So... You can see if there's any body tilt, if they're leaning away from the, the centre um, of where they should be kicking. So they get feedback immediately. And I, I when I'm coaching, I, I, I like to use the term coaching on the run. So um, a little bit like air, air traffic controllers to planes, just like I'll set up um, before we head out into the field. Here's the three cues today. So if I'm saying this certain word, um, then, you know, I, I might just say axis, which means the axis hasn't met between the middle of the ball and the middle of the foot, so the player knows straight away that he's dropping the ball outside, either inside or outside of his leg. Um, so you might say axis inside, and they're getting that feedback straight away, and they're getting lots and lots of reps. I'm not a massive fan of uh, kicking the ball long distances. I, I like it to be really intimate, so they're getting you know, 50 to 100 reps of that thing that you're working on before you open up. Right, and it's interesting that you've set up beforehand exactly what you're going to talk about. Yeah. And- and I was with Shane Pill uh, last week, and he said one of the problems that coaches find or problems that coaches encounter is that they see three or four different things to what they set out to do, yeah. and they will potentially go off and talk about those things, but not go back and focus on the things that you wanted to do. So um, from your point of view, even if you're seeing the player doing something which isn't on yep. the sheet, you yep. will you will deal with that at a later date. Yeah, so I think that's once again going all the way back to under tens, but going back to teaching, um, like you focus, hone in on the one thing, and like nail that, and then you know you're building the foundation to the next thing. And as I said, it's very easy to find and see twelve different things that you could fix, but it's almost um, too blase. It's it's too big to try and it's too big a picture to try and fix that, what you're actually honing in on. So if you have three keywords for that session that you'll just um, deliver to the players, they know what that each word means. So you set that up in the team meeting, then I find it's a very direct and intimate way of coaching. And I've found, you know, really good pay from um, having keywords that the player can then quickly mentally adapt to. We're not stopping the session at all. They're just hearing that word, then they know the next time. Um, you know, if I said um, axis inside, then they'd know they'd adjust a little bit. Like I'm a really passionate surfer and the, the the skill acquisition of learning to surf is so easy because if you fall one way, then the next wave you know 
to overbalance the opposite way. And then if you fall off the back of your board, you obviously get to put more um, weight into the front of the, the front foot. So I find surfing gives you uh, feedback immediately from the way that you fall. And I was trying to think in rugby terms, what's immediate feedback as coaches we can use in terms of that skill acquisition process that the players can then, like a surfer, get instant feedback. Now, when the surfer gets that instant feedback, that's a very physical moment for them, so they can really feel it in their body. You're mm. giving them words. Yeah. How how does that translate into the feedback which they can use? If you're if you're giving them things which are different to the actual physical moments. Yeah. I think that the secret in that, Dan, is having, uh, like as I said before, if I say axis inside. They're getting the physical. They, although they don't feel the inside drop, that I'm telling them because that's what I'm seeing. So they're getting it without having to, as a surfer, fall off the board and feel it. Um, and that's where, if you set it up really well in, in your meeting, um, and say this is what I'm looking for, and I'm going to just give you instant feedback on your ball drop. And it's easy as a coach um, just to see the ball drop and like if it's inside or outside of the leg. If it's if it's perfectly in, you go, awesome, great axis, then they know they're dropping really and they get into that flow, that, that little bit of mastery where they're getting success out of something. Now I'm going to display one of my biases here, which is um, I think that some discovery learning is very important. It's a good way of players building a skill. But here um, with the kicking, you are doing a little bit of discovery, but also yep. you're actually very much guiding the player to do yep. the kicking. So in terms of um, maybe giving the player free time to discover what, what works for them, where's, where's the balance? Because I'm thinking that from a pro level, you've got so much limit, you've got a, a limited time that the players can be on their feet practicing. Yeah. Where, where do you let them off the leash for them to work things out for themselves? And where do you say, right, actually, I'm going to spend 10 minutes on this because we've only got 10 minutes? Yeah, so we have a, like, that's a big thing for me around the autonomy, like that, being able to go and have that self-discovery. So we, we always set up our sessions so there's, like, a 10-minute performance playground at, at the start of training and then a 10-minute performance playground at the end. So if there's an – if and I always review a session just using a very simple PMI, so positive, positive minus and interesting. So pull out one from each. And the interesting is where they get to go and play around with in the performance playground or, you know, is there something interesting from the session that you want to explore further? So, for example, it could be hiding a spiral bomb and a drop pump start. So they get to play and, and have a play around with how that feels and what it looks like. Um, so I think they get the best of both worlds because you're honing in and you're, you're direct coaching inside the session and they get to that chance to go away. And, and it's still being filmed, so those 10 minutes on either side of the sessions are the performance playgrounds are being filmed so they can get feedback that way as well. Um, so just going back a bit to the original question from grassroots to the pro game, then, yep. what what things do you think um, a coach needs to think back on from a grassroots point of view which make a difference at the pro level? In other words, you may watch co uh, players being coached at the pro level and you think, well, actually that is still something they would be doing grassroots-wise? Or is there no separation? I don't think there's a separation. I, I, I think it's it's the investment of the time and the coach to get better. Um, so that's always something I I would always invest heavily 
uh, especially as I was coming up through the ranks in myself and always challenging to, you know, keep going the next step um, and have exposure to different ways of doing things. Because I think the, the, the more time investment in yourself, especially at that level, at the grassroots level, then that goes through to your team. And then if you want to keep going up the ranks, it's pretty rudimental that you've got to have, you know, team success and player development have got to go hand in hand. And then if you get those two things going, people start to take notice. I think it's very easy to fall onto the trap at um, the grassroots level being time poor. Um, you know, I always, um, we've got a great Olympic rower in New Zealand, Hamish Bond, who's 12 years of gold medals. And he actually went to the school. I went to a Tiger Boys High School. Um, and uh, he always talks about sacrifice um, versus owning a choice. He said there's no such thing as sacrifice. You've just got to own a choice. Um, and if you own that choice as a you know a young or up-and-coming coach to invest time in yourself, in terms of actually getting better, it's easy to fall into a trap of staying pretty stagnant. Um, like I remember going to courses in New Zealand as I was coming up through the ranks and just being mesmerised and just basically hanging on at, at the next level each time. Um, realizing I actually didn't know a lot when I thought I was being super successful. I'd come to the next level and realize, hang on a minute, we've got to restart rethinking things here because I haven't got these tools that I need. Um, so I think that's the biggie is just putting that time into yourself and um, somehow having access to the environment above where you currently are. Like I was massive of just going filling the the drink bottles at um, the Otago trainings and I just listened to the way that the coaches spoke and looked at their drill structure and the session structure and the team meetings. You know, I was just a fly on the wall, just giving up my own time to be part of that. And that's where I believe I learned my most, the, the biggest lessons. One of the dangers that uh, coaches will, or traps that coaches fall into is that they see another coach and they try and be like that coach. Now, yeah. obviously you will have um, gone through and come out the other side of doing that. But just looking back, which coaches and what styles of their coaching you thought, right, that is something that I need to spend more time doing. Well, give me some specifics as opposed to general, uh, this guy was a good guy. What, what were they doing which yeah. has made a real difference to the way you coach? I always, um, for me, it was Wayne Smith in New Zealand. Um, and it was, I actually watched him online do a session with uh, the, a young Waikato development team. So it was, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And the content of the session was really good, but I could see some of the players were kind of going in and out of the session, like their concentration levels. And he just had these little terms to get the players back on track. Like, like it, that was the first time I'd heard of the win analogy, you know, what's important now. Um, so he would like throw that at the players and they'd zone back in. And it was just the way he managed the session with a group he had, he didn't know. Um, and he kept them engaged. He was coaching on the run, so it wasn't stalling the session. Um, and he would only, you know, coach guys that needed the ones that were doing well, they'd get, you know, two or three words summary, you keep blah, 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 whatever that was. Mm-hmm. And it just flowed really well. And that's when I was like, okay, this is, this is the level where you want to get to. Um, and he just had, control of the group um he, he asked questions but not patronizing i think sometimes we can ask too many questions and wait you know for answers that everybody already knows which is a danger for me I th- the way he was able to draw out um you know what what were you seeing there and that decision kind of and he's building into the vision decision of um what the player was doing so you had this vision you saw that little bit of space and you made this decision 
was it the right one if you know and he would like rewind so if he saw something good he'd say stop there come and have a look at this this guy here he's found this two-on-one situation and he saw this space he checked the player as he stayed square so there's like heaps of affirmations of good things um i was, I was mesmerized watching him coach that kind of set me alight just around as i said the engagement of the group very succinct with his words didn't overplay um and kept players as they're going in and out of the session you could see their concentration levels um he's able to bring them back in with just little cool little sayings and i was like oh this is awesome so let's uh, think so wayne smith obviously one of the uh the coaches that people should uh, not necessarily copy exactly but see what they, he does and then take out the bits which work work for work for them and yeah. uh, the obviously the, the fly on the wall documentary with the all blacks was fascinating yeah. for yeah. seeing all those all those coaches in action now I think also it's also interesting to watch coaches who've been with the team for two, three, or four years, yeah. because you are trying to keep it fresh and keep the players engaged. So, what sort of little things are you might you use? And obviously, now you're only just started with the the rebels, and yeah. you and they are trying to find your feet together. And uh, there's a, a good probably energy if they don't exactly know what's coming up, uh, yeah. but. Two, three years down the line, you're going to be maybe doing the same stuff to make them better. They've got just to keep their pass efficiency uh, more effective or uh, kicking or drop drop punting. What's yeah. going to change or what's going to keep it so it's more alive for that player? Even if they listen to you and nearly said drone on for yeah. the last uh, two years about the same stuff. Yeah, uh, so... Um, I also coached um, Otago for three years in our national provincial championship. So it's a good question. And what we did um, is we would change. So theming for me was pretty big. Um, so getting a real cool and something really different. Um, I know the Crusaders are really good at it. They'll, they'll come in individually with a different theme for each season and try and get their players engaged um, that way to start with around, you know, the key terminologies related to the theme. And then for me, it's around building on little bits that the players slowly get into that world-class aspect in certain parts of their game. So generally in the professional level, you know, everyone can carry hard, tackle hard, hits breakdowns. It's adding little tools to their game each year that starts to get them noticed even at an international level. So, for example, when I first uh, worked with the Rebels back in 2019 as skills coach, um, I worked with Billy Meeks. Now, Bill always had this habit of chopping back in when he felt the outside shoulder pressure defensively. So he'd step back inwards um, and he hadn't really worked and didn't really have the ability to throw a bridge pass accurately. Um, so we had a six-week so yeah, Tell me what a bridge pass is. Oh, So a bridge ball is like a missed pass or a, long, a very long pass where you throw it at a height so you can actually go over top of the defence. Oh, okay. So if defenders come and ride... Um, come and sit in your passing lanes, you can pass over top of them. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah, sorry, carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I expect people were thinking, I'm not quite sure what a bridge pass is. So a bridge pass um, is like a big cutout pass. So if defences come and sit in your passing lanes, so they're riding high, um, it's the ability to throw over the top of those defenders to 
an attacking player on the outside. Um, so it's a, like in Super Rugby, a lot of defenses are riding super high, coming hard up line speed, and then they're swimming, so they're staying in your passing lanes. So they're cutting off a lot of passes, like missed passes and so forth. So you must have the ability to be able to pass over their heads and land it out in the outside lane to your winger or centre. And it was something that Bill um, didn't have really the ability to do, which was hurting us, the Rebels, at the time because he had Marika Corumbetti on the wing. So you need to. So teams are good. You know, good defences come and shut off the passing lane before Marika can even handle the ball. So it was, it was important for Bill, not only for his development, to you know get noticed nationally, but also for our team. So we just put a six-week program in place, um, and the first thing we looked at was hand speed. So you know you can throw the ball further. It's basic biomechanics. The faster you uh, pass something, the further it's going to go. And then you've got to add the accuracy. So there's a couple of weeks on how do we get the ball that nose of the ball to sit at 45 degrees in the air. So we look at how we want our hands to finish when they go through what I call the pass window which is from the hip to the tops of the ribs. So as long as our hands go quickly through that pass window, the ball's going to be in good shape and go uh, travel where it needs to be. Um, and then we look at our footwork. So you've got to keep your feet under the ball. Um, if we separate our feet and the ball, so if I fall away, um, go the opposite way that I want the ball flight to go, then you tend to get that ball that dies. Um, so we've got to keep our feet under the ball, which means we've got to run a certain line, an S line. We need to attack the ball. We need to be loaded as we turn back out. Um, and then put our hands through the pass window. So that we smashed those skills for six weeks. And if we go back to round five against the Lions um, in Melbourne, Amy Park, you'll see Bill throws two 40-metre bridge passes to Marika. And the shape of the ball to Marika means Marika doesn't have to change his speed at all catching it. So it just showed like, that direct correlation of that skill, which not only helped Bill, but also helped um, you know the team get better at something that we needed. So when you were practicing with uh, Bill, um, yeah. what sort of things? So you let's say you're working on the hand speed or the, uh, the shape of the hands at the end. Yeah, what would they actually be doing? So uh, yeah. and how long would they be practicing it for? Would that be uh, three minutes, twenty minutes? Um, how often a week? Yeah, what, what would be happening? So that would be this would fall into the performance playground window. Um, so it'll be before and after training. So I'll have specific one-on-ones. So if I want to increase his hand speed, I'll either create a time stimulus or a spatial one. So one of the things I'd use is I'd have a hit shield and he would stand a meter away from me. He would get a ball and I'd come flying down with the hit shield like a crocodile snap and try and whack the ball out of his hands by the time he caught and tried to throw it away. So what I'm doing there is building a stimulus for him to speed up his hand speed. At a static, and then he would, then would have a coloured cone. So he, I'd say, you know, red or blue. Red might be a meter away from me. Blue might be three meters away from me. So then he starts to add footwork when I'm still trying to smack that ball out of his hands with the pad, and that helps build his um, hand speed. For example, then in terms of you know where I wanted his hands to finish, I'd get him to pass through poles. So I'd have two um, poles that you can stick in the ground that you, can, you could use corner flags. They might be a metre apart and he'd run full noise onto the ball and he'd have to pass the ball through those poles. So then what we're doing is forcing both his hands to be really accurate and finish long so that he can actually get the ball through the poles. And as he got better, I could make the poles smaller and smaller. And then I'd create a certain height of the poles. 
So he would pass through the poles and I'd stand between him and the person who was receiving and I'd raise the hit shield way above my head. So now he had, you know, a directional target where he had to rainbow the ball over. So there, there are three really easy examples, like trying to whack the ball out of his hands when he catches, his hand speed. Poles makes him have to overforce and push his hands hard, both hands through the pass window. And then adding that stimulus um, of raising the pad really high so he's overemphasizing the direction of the ball over the defenders. Um, so there's three easy ways to increase, you know, your bridge ball. Okay, and all this um, came about from the fact that, apart from identifying the player's weakness, you yep. understood the the biomechanics of creating that pass. And yep. you've given me probably six six key points there that yep. you would need need to work on. Yeah. In order to do that. Yeah, and Does that mean, go on, oh, sorry, I, I, probably that the area I forgot to mention was we actually measured it. So um, at the end of like our 10-minute our window, we would then do 10 bridges, bridge balls off either hand, and he would just get a very basic percentage each week. So if he's got 6 out of 10 on the money, he's working at 60%, and we'd just write that down in his little individual performance plan. And then each week, um, you know, we'd measure it. So we'd put it under pressure as well. So he was seeing, oh, this, you know, he's gone from 60 to 70s, getting up around the 80s. And then he saw that kind of that development himself. So I thought it was, it was really important that you measure the outcome so they have, they have that ability to see that they're actually getting better. So does that mean that there are, you've got a number of skills written yep. down somewhere with a number of key things that a player should do? Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. So, like, as I said, like, it's super and at professional level players need little tools and little parts of their game that differentiate them from others as i said everyone tackles hard runs hard carries hard cleans hard what are the little tools that we can give them that are going to start to differentiate them from people in their position um and that's that's the route i go down when selling the skill acquisition to very good players like um, you know, how can, what can we make, what's one tool we can sharpen that's going to make you world-class at this, this small aspect? It could be an in-swinger or an out-swinging grubber kick that you're working with Matt Tamora on, like the ability to put the ball through the line and then purposely get it to out-swing to the wing or, you know, run away from the fullback as he's coming at it. That is a world-class ability. That's a world-class grubber. So that's interesting now you said that uh, you've given them, everyone can tackle hard, run hard. Now, one assumes you've also got to work on the tackle hard, run hard, because uh, skills over time, you you don't just you don't just tick off a skill and put that in your toolbox and it's uh, yeah. it's always there. It yeah. it loses its potency if it's not practiced. That's right. So you must be going back and working on those those core skills all the time. Oh, what what would you identify say for one aspect is a core skill that you you will. Yes, we'll be going back to this uh, week three, week six, week eight, or whatever. There is this. This one is definitely you'll do this. Give me, can you give me an example of that? Yeah. So for me, running lines. I'm super passionate around running lines. So I do a lot, a lot, a lot of work on um, like an S line. So attacking the ball in the air. So a line for the D and a line for the ball. Um, so actually attacking the ball at the direction it's coming from, then turning so you're loaded straight away. So I'm always smashing an S line. Square hands and, and keeping square on the ball, um, that's a biggie for me. So I'll always have stimulus inside training around being square. 
um, and then purposely running, you know, specific lines that you want to use to manipulate in different areas of the field, like a Y line, so just a pure unders and overs. Um, I'm a really big fan of the L line. So Michael Collins, I think his first game for Ospreys, he scored two tries running an L line um, where he came in at the ball horizontally, which is very weird for the D. So Michael and I actually go way back 2010. Um, I coached him at first 15 level Tiger Boys High School, and he was my captain in 2011. Then I coached him all through Otago as he came through the ranks uh, playing NPC, and that was something we'd worked on. That's a little tool of Michael's, the L-line, um, that he, he possesses and knows how to use it um, to work off a nine and, and create a wee seam for himself. So, yeah, running lines for me is something you must always be touching on and adding to you know the different positions in your team, there's different lines that uh, certain certain positions have to be really good at. So we're talking about running lines, and there is, and I don't want to sort of delve into the debate around it, is that you may put stimulus on the ground for them to beat, like a pole or a cone. And yeah. uh, there, there is a there's a body of thought saying, well, this isn't representative of the game. Yeah. So you're, you're measuring it, you're seeing the outcomes. How do you move from what doesn't look like the game into what looks like the game? Where's the balance? Oh, I, I think that's the like how well you plan a session. So if, if you're nailing one aspect of a running line, so, say, for example, you want them to be super square um, and you're adding some type of time or spatial um, element or a physical stimulus that they must manipulate to stay square, then the, for me it then comes down to the ability to see what's in front of them. So if if the defender's shoulder is predominantly facing out, um, you know that that player's trying to jockey or you know check and push defense. You've got to get his shoulder in. So in training, what I do is I'll micro detail. Um, you know whether if it's square running lines, they'll have to pass and check just one little pole. So the inside of their hip must just brush the pole after they've passed, which keeps them super square. Then the next development of that um, is they'll have a pad holder in front of them who deliberately tilt one way or the other. So then they're, now they're running a line depending on what the D is giving them. And that's the ultimate where you want to get to. But there's no point getting to the point of reading what the D is doing if you don't know how to action the line properly and what it feels like uh, um, and how to action it You know when the ball's in the air as well. That's... That's now the the other big unknown is how the receiver gets the ball, and I'm super passionate around the shape of the ball with the receiver, so we can run proper running lines. So then you're stripping all the way back to you know pass quality inside your running line. So it's it's the it's the perfect circle. <laughs> right. So uh, I'm fascinated now by the shape of the ball. Yeah. What is the shape of the ball that needs to be received? What are you suggesting here? It's something I'm passionate about, and it's um, it's what I believe that the the better the shape of the ball to the receiver, the closer and more confidence you can play inside the line speed and closer to the defensive line. So if I'm massive around the nose of the ball being at basically 45 degrees upwards um, between the pass window, so you know that the top of your hip to the mm top of your ribs if the ball's coming at you in that angle and the nose is up it means I'm catching the ball as a back as a triple threat so in one motion I can swing the ball to the outside or the inside of my body and I can kick I don't have to change it in my hands or I can roll my hand over and I'm passing immediately or I'm already loaded for a dummy so you know put the head and then put the hammer down um, 
And uh, if you're if you've got the ball coming to you and it, the nose is dropping, what you'll find is those types of passes drop to the belly button. So the eye line of the receiver, he's got to make a massive decision. Does he keep the eye line on the D who's coming hard at him? And like you're catching down below, so now I can only carry. Or they, you'll tend to see like forwards especially catching off nine in a pod. They'll drop their eye line to the ball and then get double tackled, smacked. Whereas like a really good pass to a forward to play, you know, super close to the defensive line. If they're just catching outside their body and the shape of the ball is up, then they can put a little bit of late footwork on the line um, and bring the ball into the middle of their body. So now they've got three points of distinctive contact as they're going into the contact. It's a huge. So I can, so I can see that now. Now, what? How are you going to get that ball to arrive at that angle? Once again, so all all my training sessions have stimulus in them to force the players to pass through their pass window. Um, so I, I do a lot of pole passing where uh, they're forced to finish strong and fast through their pass window, otherwise the ball's not going to travel between the poles. And then what you tend to find, as I said before, the same biomechanics, like if you pass, if your hands move quickly through your pass window, the shape of the ball all of a sudden is a lot better because you're putting speed onto the ball through um, you know, the biomechanics of your hands going through your pass window. So if you can speed players' hand speed up, then they don't tend, you don't tend to get like that over-dominant top hand, which means the ball's going to drop. So if you've got an over-dominant top hand passer, the ball generally travels downwards as it goes to the receiver. If they've got a weak top hand, so if they're passing off their bad side, what you tend to find is that loopy kind of that inwards pass. So if the hand's not dominant, the uh, passing hand on top of the ball isn't dominant, then you tend to get the ball that drifts too far vertically. The nose starts to go like 90 degrees and you get like that wee wobbly kind of ball. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a massive thing for me around pass quality. Um, gives the attacking receiver a lot more time, a lot more options to play close to the, the line speed and make good decisions. So let's go back in time now. And I'm just thinking about uh, some of the challenges I've got with some of the players that I'm working with. Um, yeah. Is that, especially in the women's game, that the pass quality of some of the older players uh, yep. isn't as good as, as it should be uh, yep. because they haven't played as much rugby as uh, yep. some of the players of a similar age. Now, if you're working with players who haven't passed a lot, yeah, um, what sort of things are you giving them to just get them to start to pass more effectively? Some easy wins. Because obviously oh. you're working with uh, the top players with super yeah. detail, and uh, I think yeah. we can see... Uh, that's what we want to do. I want to find some easy wins for these these players. Or maybe no, there aren't easy wins. No, there, there are easy wins. And it's I, I always start my passing sessions regardless of what crew I'm working with. Like I did work with the Targo women's team. Exactly what you were saying. Limited time, players who have you know had 17 years, maybe a bad habit. Who knows? Um, but what you've got. And I always put a start with a little pass challenge. And wherever that pass challenge finishes, that's like the, the line in the sand. Um, so I always know there's one that I use where they just thread the posts. So you have just to have two lanes. You run at the post and then you go hard unders. Then you thread the ball between the posts. You bounce the person who's going to catch it onto an overs line. Then they kind of step off their inside, uh, sorry, their outside foot, and then they do the same. So the ball's continually going threading through the posts. And I just put a number on that straight away. So, for example, you might get seven passes. 
And then that is the line in the sand as to why we need to be good. There's no point doing anything else until we can pass the ball accurately seven metres to each other um, and use footwork and keep the shape of the ball really good to the receiver. So I, I sell it that way straight away. Okay, girls, there's, there's seven. Let's see if we can get to ten. Okay, what's happening here? Why is the ball dying? Rightio, we've got to get both hands through that pass window. And I think if you start with why, so for example, hey, we can only do seven. Um, other teams I work with, we do 50 or 100. We open a session with 100 of these. Then you've got them straight away on the hook as to, okay, this is why we need this. There's no point going doing backs moves uh, and trying to play a with-with game if you can't accurately pass the ball seven metres to each other with the shape really good. Um, that's so just... Yeah, so what we would do is with maybe uh, under 10s, under 12s, we would cut the poles and we would yeah. be working on, say, three metres. Yeah. And um, uh, just so people can picture it, I probably need to do a diagram and uh, <laughs> add that into the thing. And I, I will do that. But what we're going to do is say that you run at, uh, you put two poles. Yeah. And say, let's put this, put, put it on a line, two poles on a line. Uh, so four meters apart, the passer runs yeah. at one pole and then steps yeah. outside the pole uh, and passes back in between the poles. So they've gone beyond the first pole and they're passing in between to the second players going outside the other pole. Yeah, so it's like a continuous, continuous thread. So the first uh, receiver runs at the pole and then goes hard unders and then steps off their outside foot and then rips the ball between the poles. So it should shave the back of the second pole. The receiver automatically should be bounced onto an overs by catching it. So all of a sudden you're starting to learn about how a pass can beat a defender without having to do anything. Yeah. Um, and then that person who catches it, they, do, they now step hard off their outside of their foot and return the pass to the next person in the line. So it's, it's just continuous. And so the ball is uh, right, okay. yeah. It's, it's yeah. not it's not like they are running at full pace either, because otherwise you uh, build into it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you build into it. Um, and, and and the secret for me is obviously make it competitive. So you might start as a group, and then you'll split away, like you know, odds versus evens. Have two lots of them going. Um, first group to twenty, and then they start. Then you're really starting to force um, that awesome ability to pass the ball well. And I always find it you just get so much pay from it at any age group. And it, it, it's a fun way to start a session and it's a point of difference as a team. You know, you, you pride yourself on as the season goes on, you get up to 100. Like I've seen it with – I've done it with lots of teams. Like teams start, honestly, under, under 10. Like they can't get 10. And this is professional teams I've dealt with as well. You can't get 10 of those types of passes away. Now you'll just snap on the post. You go, Rodeos thread snaps and you know there's a hundred within two minutes and it's just a point of difference that we pass the ball well and we use the ball to beat defenders and then you start adding the layers around you know front door back door and everything else front front door back door so um front door back door uh, so like if you're running a, a play like a second man play um so you know someone runs a front door aggressive they get like a short ball and then you can play out the back at the same time so you can actually right build that into that post drill because then you start you start having two balls going at the same time. So the other day with the Rebels, um, we had two balls going. So both lines, the ball's just threading constantly, like it's crisscrossing. Um, and what you're doing there is building the ability to pull the ball back to release to you know someone on a second line of attack. 
versus the front line of attack. All and simple drill, and all of a sudden, it's you're building that into your game. So let's say a team is um, getting say seven yeah. or eight. Uh, yeah. What's the one thing that you would come in and say to them, which suddenly takes them up uh, twenty, thirty percent immediately when you think? I know. I know straight away what it'll be. It's um, what happens is when the player, the first player, uh, goes at the post and then goes unders. When they go to pass the ball, they separate their body and the ball, so they'll fall away the opposite direction that they want the ball to go. And I know straight away at all levels of the game that is exactly what's going to happen. So then it's a great coaching moment for me to say, I'm going to show you why it's important to keep your feet under the ball. Not only does it make you a more powerful passer, but second thing is you're now going to be, you're going to have a second touch opportunity. So because if you pass the ball and then your feet are going the direction that the ball's going, you naturally start to run a line to become a support player. And so I call that the second touch. Um, and so if we pass the ball and our feet remain under the ball, uh, then we then have the ability to, to go hard on and become a support player. If we separate away from the ball, especially at the top end of the game, you get checked out as a defender. So the D will get in between you and your pass and make you late to become a cleaner or not even have an opportunity to get an offload back. So at the, the, the concept remains the same, whether it's under 10 to professional but the outcomes can <laughs> hurt you big time. Like at the professional game, if you get checked out as an attacker, you're in trouble. You're going to be late for a clean. Um, you're going to be late to get an offload. You're going to miss an opportunity. So we've talked a lot about the skill and we've got players who are passing more accurately, faster. We're going through some key points in terms of how we want the pass to happen. Yeah. Um, now we're going into game situations and playing yeah. um, and improving. And we'll let's go back to Billy Meeks and what he's done. Yeah. How do you make the training game realistic without actually playing the full game? Yeah, so it, I'm a massive fan um, around the perception, so perception coupling of your training. So all my skills and drills are set up in the true feel of the game. So for example, if I'm working with my edge players, so I've got four players, just say three backs and one forward, if that's the style that you're playing in terms of your edge, I would always train them in the exact feel of the edge. So I'd have them between the 15 and the sideline if it was small edge attack. And then I'd have the exact common D pitches in whatever competition we're playing in. These are the pitches you're going to get. So it might be three and a half, so three front line and one who's on last set of hands plus backfield coverage. So the players, so although it's mini world and the ball's coming in fake into the edge, they're getting the same feel, and it could just be starting with poles as the defenders. This is where the D's going to be. Let's not worry about reading the body shape just at the moment. Let's just nail our running lines today. And then the next session, I might put pad holders in who just rotate the pads inside or outside shoulder. So then I want their eyes up. Okay, here's an inside shoulder here. How do we manipulate that? How do we uh, create the outside space there if he's coming jamming in? Or if, geez, there's three hard and fast frontline defenders. The pads are coming hard. How do we beat that? We've got to get that backfield coverage player to come and look after our last set of hands so we can put a grubber through. So whatever I do, it's always very realistic in terms of this is the feel of it in the field position. These are the dimensions. This is the exact D pitches. 
But as I said, you might just start with poles or cones. This is the D picture. Have a look at this. And then how do we manipulate that with our running lines? What type of hand speed do we need to do to beat this team who are going to come hard at us, you know, outside to in defense? Rightio, we're going to need bridges this week. Should it come off first set of hands or second? So then we start building layers. Um, and I think that's the easiest way to manipulate or mini, what I call mini world little parts of your training that still have the exact same feel as what they're going to see in the game. So if it's the exact same feel, I'm just thinking that um, a cone, uh, a pole, a pad isn't what they're going to see in the game. No. So what you're saying is that you are building up to that yeah. perception. So you're yeah. just like mini, in the mini world, it's mini steps. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So it's, it goes back to my same rule around using stimulus. So we're, this is what this is the part of the field. This is the space you get to play with. Let's start with nailing one thing this week that's going to make this better for this part of the field. As we started this this session, we said, you know, it's easy as a coach to see 12 different pitches and you're kind of throwing different things out and the players are getting confused. If you know this week we are working on bridge passing to solve this defensive pitcher on the edge, easy stuff. Yeah, well, Brian, we've, we've covered uh, a very small, tiny section of all the things that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> But we'll we'll uh, we'll draw it to a close there, and I, I'd really like to uh, get you back on again to uh, pick your yeah. brains. But from from my point of view, what's been extremely interesting is how you're breaking everything down into yeah. its component parts and concentrating on that. And uh, I think that um, I just want to just to sort of conclude or summarise then from a, a coach who's working with say the Melbourne Rebels to looking back to the time when you were coaching maybe with the under 10s uh, through, yeah. what, what sort of message would you say to the under 10s, under 12s coach, or even maybe the under 16s coach who's coaching up a bit? What what am I doing with the Rebels that I would still be doing with the these guys? Yeah, I, I, as I said at the start, I think invest in yourself. Um, like it's very, it's very easy to say you're time poor and, you know, maybe coaching is not for everybody. And, and it's great that we've got lots of volunteer coaches, but the, if you want to be successful in the coaching game, you, you have to, you can't escape from investing in yourself, you know, reading, just reading whatever you're passionate about in coaching. Like I'm huge on skill acquisition. So um, I went, I stripped everything back to the biomechanics. I looked at the way javelin throwers throw the javelin and learned about, you know, force summation and how quickly you can move levers through certain areas of your body to add length and accuracy it just fell perfectly into passing and kicking I was like wow hang on a minute so I think find an area that you um you know that you just could be like how to how to run your team meetings better or how to have your sessions so they flow like the transition of your team I, I always talk to under 10 coaches when I was back in New Zealand and I'd deliver courses and I'd say I love teams that transition really well at training so like you see them like they morph into the color of the whatever their training jersey is and they go to the drink bottles together and they have 45 seconds and they move to get to the next drill and the coach is really good with his like four cones. I need four attackers and it's, it's like bang. So you're not wasting any time. So it could be, you know, around investing in manager, management time and around how to manage your trainings with awesome transitions. You're just seen as this great team that transitions really well. I've spoken to coaches around how to address the team huddle at the end of a game. In New Zealand, what happens, you know, with our, our age groups and our younger teams is you'll finish the game and you'll have your team and the parents come and huddle around you. I said, take your team with you and run the four corners of the field and have, you know, do a PMI or, um, you know, 
pull out four things that you're going to work on for that training away from the parents. So right out on me and you run to the first corner and they will huddle around you like a honeybee and the parents start to respect that. Like, wow, this, okay, this is the coach's time. He needs this time. Otherwise what happens is the kids come in and they sit down around the coach and you've got the parents chipping in. And so it's just an easy way to build a real cool culture around. This is my time. Parents, you're going to get your kids in a minute. Just follow me team. And we run each corner of the field. We just played on. Rightio, what's our, what's our big work on for tackling this week? Great, let's remember that. And all of a sudden, you're building this cool culture around, um, you know, taking what happened and putting it into your training plan. The, tri- the players are driving themselves. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, that's been brilliant, Ryan. I've, I've taken a, a learn from that. And uh, my next training session will be uh, sharper and <laughs> more, uh, more aligned to some of the things there. But it's been it's fascinating because the other thing is that you've you've – You've done a lot of different teaching styles. Yeah, about a lot of different ways of doing. It. Not just I will only use this, or I'm going to use this here, use this here, and it's going to be appropriate. For me, one of the key things is apart from obviously completely committed and passionate about it is uh, is the detail. And mm. uh, the best coaches also have a very good, strong understanding of the detail and yeah. when to give that detail, and also when when not to because it doesn't it's not appropriate for that time, but. Right, that's brilliant. If um, I know that you're busy on Twitter sharing things, where do we go to find out a little bit more about some of the coaching that you're doing? Yeah, well, at the moment it's purely just on Twitter. I actually literally throw up um, training drills that are that are real. Um, I, I have done some work for the rugby site. I've got some offloading stuff, uh, some sessions I did for them. But I'm really passionate around putting out what people see is real. This is a team. It's not going to be perfect. Sometimes there's lying. Sometimes there's balls flying all over the show. Um, I I just know that when I was a young coach, I I enjoyed seeing the real coaching. Like, oh, wow, how does he deal with this? There's quite a big line forming there. Like, um, how does he quickly transition this drill when, you know, there's 10 people waiting? Like, that's the stuff I was intrigued in. And I think that's what I'm trying to put up on my Twitter is this is real stuff. It's not going to be perfect. You can see the fundamentals of what I'm trying to do, um, and it's real. I'm making mistakes, but from those mistakes, obviously, you know, I go home and think about it. How would I do that better? And that's as a coach, that's all you want to be doing. Okay. Well, uh, if you're interested in that, just go over to at Coach Ryan Martin. I'll put the link in um, in the blurb. But right, thank you very much for your time. Uh, good luck with the the coaching. Your real season starts when. Well, uh, um, it's a great story. We've got the longest preseason ever, so um, we start at the e, uh, mid to mid to end February. Um, so it's a very rare commodity at the moment where I've got a, a big long preseason to instill some of these cool habits. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing the, uh, the rebels passing the best yeah. they've ever passed. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. This uh, is a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to find out more about podcast go over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button uh it goes for me to say thank you very much ryan for your time and your insights yeah no thanks for having me on it was great yeah very enjoyable uh huge amount of passion and uh if uh if only i'd recorded the some of the video you'd see him uh ryan just throwing his arms around and i was also uh, throwing my hands from my hips to my uh, to my shoulder just to try and remember what it was to pass. Uh, anyway, great, great fun. Really enjoyed it. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye for now.
Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.